Well, we arrive in the last section of our ongoing series, Life Together, Community, Truth, and Mission. And we begin today uh, what we will look at for several weeks, which is mission. This morning, we will talk about participation, coming out from hiding. In a little bit, we'll be in the book of Daniel, and we're going to look at sections from the first four chapters of the book of Daniel. For our worshipers in training, your keywords are culture, mission, and engage. So this morning, what I want to address is this life as a Christian in the church. Life as the church being what we're going to call counter Cultural. What is it to live in the midst of a culture and yet not be of the world? I want to begin with a few definitions to help us along because you'll hear these terms frequently as I move along. First is culture. What do we mean by this word culture? Culture is simply where we live and how we live. It's the clothes we wear, the houses we live in, the food we eat, the music we listen to, the cars we drive, the language we speak, the customs we adhere to, the traditions we have as a people. This is culture, and every one of us is influenced by culture. We simply need only to look around and see that. We are all very similar in many ways because of our culture. So then, what is it to be countercultural? Well, simply, that's doing or continuing or promoting things already existing in culture that honor God, and then finding ways to redeem or rescue those things in culture that do not honor God. So it's life as responsible citizens. It's living as a people who are fulfilling the commands of God. Living as a people who love their neighbors and engaging the culture with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Seeking to advance the kingdom of God. And all of this must happen with great wisdom and discernment. So these are going to be two guiding definitions this morning. So what does a countercultural life look like? This is the big question we're after this morning. And I want to prove from Scripture that this is the very thing that God calls us to as we live in the world. Now, first of all, it may be easier if we look at what it does not look like. There are two great errors when looking at this very issue. The first is that we may have a desire to totally withdraw and separate from the culture altogether. To create sort of our own subculture. So we don't have to live in the world. We don't have to live amongst non-Christians around us. So the result is, and this has been very prominent in American Christianity in some circles, is that we've created Christian everything, right? Christian radio and Christian TV shows and Christian movies and t-shirts. And if your toilet backs up, call the Christian plumber. Eat testaments for your bad breath. Go to the Christian theme park and read Christian fiction novels. Even the new series that just came out about Amish vampires. And on and on and on and on we can go. Christian everything. So as a result, we've seen the American church build megaplexes of Christianity. Maybe complete with coffee shops and a Christian kinkos and an arcade for the teenagers so we don't have to play the same video games and drink the same coffee and print our mail-outs on the same paper as non-Christians. Now, I think that this is all done in a genuine, well-meaning effort to remain holy. But this is one extreme that I believe we must avoid. The second is that we would look so much like the world that there is no distinct difference about us whatsoever. Maybe we go to church every now and then, but we talk and act and look and are entertained like the rest of the world. And this is the opposite extreme. There is nothing distinct about us. 
So what's the middle ground here and where should we as a body of believers fall in this? Participating in culture without becoming everything the culture is does not mean that we simply withdraw. It does not mean that we simply conform. It means that we create culture, that we are counter-cultural. And that's where we're going to spend our time looking this morning. What does that look like? Now, I think the tendency for the most part for the church has been a complete withdrawal from culture. As a result, I think a lot of people, granted for the wrong reasons, have nevertheless rejected the church as a whole because they've seen it as an isolated enclave that doesn't really care much about anyone or anything unless that person or that thing conforms to their specific worldview. Now, do we want to see our people adopt our worldview as the church? Yes. But how do we get there? And what does that look like from day to day? This isolation has often taken on the form of harsh political involvement, seeking to change culture to bring conformity through laws instead of changed hearts. It's easier to get laws changed than to work through change and transformation through culture and relationships and engaging our neighbors with the gospel. Now, don't hear me wrong. I'm not saying that it's wrong to involve ourselves politically. I think it's important and right. But where is your hope placed for change? An example of this isolational idea is an example from culture, a movie called The Village. Many of you may have seen several years ago. A group of people you find... I'm going to ruin the end of the movie for you. I'm sorry if you've never seen it. A group of people... Decide, you see at the end of the movie, that culture around them, the world around them was so corrupt and so devastating to this life that they wanted to live that they bought a large plot of land and they carved out of it a community that they would live in and only a select few members knew what was going on. And as they moved there, they had children and children would grow up thinking this was all there was to the world. And they protected their village, anyone from going outside of it by having uh, uh, stories of uh, the creatures in the forest that would get them if they went. And so they kept them isolated into this community because they didn't want to be influenced by the culture outside of them. And I think very much that this is an illustration of what much of the church has been in American history. Sadly, as a response to isolationism, many in the church have gone the extreme opposite and have adopted a great comfort with worldliness. And that looks and sounds like, I love Jesus, but... Nothing in my life is any different than every other person around me. So our forms of entertainment and how we spend our time and how we spend our money and how we make our decisions and how you work through relationships, all of those things are no different than the person next door, except for when they use the Lord's name in vain, we might tell them that we'd prefer they use another four-letter word instead. So before we move on, we need to consider these two positions. Each of us as individuals and us as a church. Where do we, where do our families, where do we as a church land on this spectrum? These are some very important considerations. Culture is all around us and we are in it and we have a responsibility working toward its transformation. So we can't simply ignore it. So I hope we will all consider where we're at this morning as we move forward. Now, the alternative to these errors is to be countercultural, to live in such a way that we are celebrating in God's creation the things that are already at work to bring Him glory, His common grace that He gives to all of mankind, and seeking to redeem things that are not already bringing Him glory. So as a part of our culture, Christians should be an active, dynamic, counter-culture. It's not enough for us to simply say, live within our culture. This is not why Jesus prayed in His high priestly prayer, as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. 
Jesus did not simply live within culture, did He? As Christians, we must live a particular kind of community. Jesus told His disciples that they were a city on a hill that showed God's glory to the world. So Christians are called to be counter-cultural within every human culture. And in doing so, we're called to show the culture who we are and how we do life in non-destructive, God-honoring ways. And so in our relationships, our marriages, our parenting, our, how we go about courtship and dating, how we spend our money, how we save our money, how we give our money, how we s- submit to leadership. All of these things are means that we have to be a countercultural people. So let me give us an example here. How we use our money. Christian countercultural encourage us, encourages us to be radically generous in our commitment of what we have financially, what we have in terms of um, possessions and with our time and with our relationships and with our living space, using these things for the purposes of ministry, for social justice and the needs of the poor, for the immigrant, for the economically and physically weak. We see this in the early church, right? In Acts chapter 2, we saw how they were using all that they had. They were selling all that they had and giving to the saints as they had need. They didn't see what they owned as theirs. They saw all that they had as a means for the gospel, as a means to bless others for the sake of the kingdom. Another example, men loving their wives, speaking well of them, always esteeming them highly. How often do we see this in the culture around us? We're not looking at chicks with the guys. We're talking instead about how much we love our marriage, how much we respect our wives and are thankful for our families. We're not referring to the old ball and chain or the old lady, but instead my bride. Christians should not only be radically committed to the good of other Christians, but to our cities and to our neighborhood as a whole. We mustn't cling to the comforts of our buildings and our homes, but serve for the good of the entire community, especially the poor and the widows and the orphans, as the Bible continuously tells us to do. In Revelation chapter 21 and 22, it speaks of the renewing of the world, a renewing of the culture. So God's purpose is not only saving individuals, but also inaugurating a new world based on justice and peace and love. Not power and strife and selfishness. So the Christian task is to work for the peace and the security and the justice and the prosperity of our cities and our neighborhoods and to love them in word and in deed. Whether they believe what we believe or not. Jeremiah 29.7 We see the Israelites are called not just to live in the city as people in exile, but also to love it and to work for its shalom, for its peace that comes by God alone. To work toward economic and social and spiritual flourishing. The citizens of God's city are the best possible citizens of their earthly neighborhoods, or we should be anyway. You should be the best neighbor in your neighborhood. This is why Jesus prayed that the Father not take us out of the world, but protect us from evil while we are in the world. And unless we are actively engaging and serving our culture, Christianity will have no place in the hearts and minds of our neighbors. Why? Because we are God's means. And without us actively serving as that means the gospel goes unannounced in our communities. God expects His people to love and to serve rather than condemn and isolate from our neighbors, even if our neighbors are our enemies. It's very easy to condemn and judge and look down on and scoff at, right? 
It's much more difficult to engage over the long haul for healthy, God-honoring relationships. We must know this, that in every culture, there is Christian behavior and Christian belief that will be hated and will be attacked. Depending on the culture you live in and the cultural values that exist, you will... Uh, there will be Christian values that are both accepted and rejected by those who are non-believers. So, as an example, for Christians who may be living in a predominantly Muslim culture, while they completely misunderstand what we're saying by it, in Muslim culture, they would maybe elevate the idea of submissive wives but they would absolutely reject the idea of loving as Christ loved the church. Perhaps in New York City, they would love our emphasis on forgiveness and reconciliation, but they would absolutely hate our emphasis that we maintain sexual purity and abstain from fornication. You see, depending on the culture we're in and the values that have been adopted, we will either be accepted in some ways or rejected in others. But lest one is a believer in Christ, nothing will be accepted wholesale. Every non-Christian culture has enough common grace from God to recognize some of the work of God in the world and to be attracted to it, even while Christianity in other ways will offend the dominant culture as a whole. So we cannot just denounce and cast away the culture altogether. That's like throwing rocks at your own house. And we must not just adopt it either. We must sacrificially serve for the common good of our neighbors, expecting that we will constantly be misunderstood and sometimes attacked. And we must walk in lockstep with the one who laid down his life for his enemies. So... Let's look at an example of this countercultural life in Scripture. We're going to look at the life of Daniel. We're going to look primarily at chapters 1 through 4. We're not going to read all of it. We will read some of it. So, Daniel chapter 1. Let's begin in verse 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in his treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Aspenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish and good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and languages of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, and Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king who assigned you food and your drink. For why should he see that you were in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. Then Daniel said to the steward whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Test your servants for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this manner and tested them for ten days. 
At the end of ten days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. So, first, why the why are they abstaining from this diet? Well, a sort of protection from being tempted by the Babylonian lifestyle, to maintain their identity as a people of God. It may have been food offered to idols. We don't know. It may have been certain foods that they know very clearly from the law of God that they as a Jewish people were commanded not to eat because of its uncleanliness. But the result is, look at verse 18. At the end of the time when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke with them, and among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore they stood before the king. And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. So they proved themselves to the king. They were humble. They were submissive. And notice in all of this, they did not go to Nebuchadnezzar and rebuke him as a pagan God-hater, did they? Later we see Nebuchadnezzar has dreams that he once interpreted, and Daniel said he could do it. He prays with the others for three days for wisdom. We see in chapter 2, verses 24 through 30, Therefore Daniel went into Antioch. Whom the king had appointed to, uh, excuse me, went into Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went and said thus to him, "Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Bring me in before the king, and I will show the king the interpretation." Then Arioch brought in Daniel before the king in haste and said thus to him, I have found among the exiles from Judah a man who will make known to the king the interpretation. The king said to Daniel, whose name was Belshazzar, Are you able to make known to me the dream that I have seen and its interpretation? Daniel answered the king and said, No wise man, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show to the king the mystery that the king has asked. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Your dream and the visions of your head as you lay in bed are these. To you, O king, as you lay in bed come thoughts of what would be after this, and he who reveals mysteries made known to you what is to be. But as for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because of any wisdom that I have more than all the living, but in order that the interpretation may be made known to the king and that you may be know, that you may know the thoughts of your mind. So notice in this... Daniel is proclaiming God's greatness, God's power in the midst of providing the king with what he desires. He's not rejecting the king's request. He's only making clear in the midst of his answer who God is and where he received wisdom and where he received knowledge. So what happens? It all comes to pass as Daniel says it will. Verse 46 Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell upon his face and paid homage to Daniel and commanded that an offering and incense be offered up to him. The king answered and said to Daniel, Truly, your God is God of gods and Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this mystery. Then the king gave Daniel high honors and many great gifts and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief Prefect over all wise men of Babylon, Daniel made a request of the king and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon. But Daniel remained at the king's court. So Daniel is shown great favor. He's faithful to present God well as a great, glorious, and powerful king. And as a result, Nebuchadnezzar glorifies God. What do we notice in the midst of this? What is Daniel's disposition before the king? He's not abrasive. He's not intentionally offensive. He's not hateful. Or rather, he's winsome. 
He's loving and respectful and very honest. We see Him praying in front of His window each night, making small and large choices to remind Him that He belongs to another king and another kingdom. In chapter 4, verses 19 through 27, we see Him interpret a second dream, showing great love for the oppressed of the city and even appealing to Nebuchadnezzar to pursue righteousness and his own prosperity. Look in verse 27. Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. Daniel was working for the prosperity of a city that he was in exile in. He was obedient and trustworthy and well-respected, even given a place of high honor. Unless, very important, Unless he was commanded to go against what God had already clearly commanded otherwise. What else happens in the book of Daniel? In chapter 3, we see Nebuchadnezzar builds a golden image and commands everyone to bow down to this image. And Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego refuse to bow down to the image based on God's command. You shall have no other God before me. Do not make for yourselves graven images or idols. So what is the result? The fiery furnace. We know the story, right? How do they respond to Nebuchadnezzar as they go before him? Oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer to you in this matter. If this be so, if you're going to throw us in the fiery furnace, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace. And if He will deliver us out of your hand, O King, but if not, be it known to you, O King, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. In other words, God will deliver us. And even if He doesn't, we're still not bowing down to your idol because He commanded us not to. Chapter 6, Daniel rejects the injunction to not worship any god but Darius. Daniel's thrown into the lion's den. God sends angels to shut the mouths of lions. In chapter 8, verse 27, we see after interpreting a dream, being worn down by what God reveals to him, Daniel is tired and broken. He rests, and what does he do? He goes instantly back to work. He's showing a great work ethic, doing all things unto the Lord, even though what he is doing is for a pagan, godless king that has no desire to truly worship the one true and living God. The point of all of this is to live a countercultural life like we see in the life of Daniel, is to examine every aspect of our lives and every cultural feature in light of the Scriptures, asking some very specific questions. I have four. One, does what I am doing or watching or hearing or working on, does this help me to find greater joy in God that will be displayed in my life Or does it tempt me to sin and disobedience? Two, if it leads me into sin and disobedience, is it something I can simply avoid? Or is it something I must address? So for example, can I simply avoid it? Do I know that I'm going to watch a godless film that is going to tempt me to sin? If so, I can simply avoid it. Something I must address perhaps would be the unethical practices of a co-worker. That would bring me great advantage, but nevertheless is sin. Third, how can I approach whatever it is I'm doing with a desire to win favor with outsiders yet remain faithful to the gospel? That's a curious statement and we'll talk about that in a moment. Sometimes the answer is going to be, I can't. I simply cannot. But the gospel is offensive in itself. We need not be offensive. 
Fourth, what's good about this situation that I can build on and work from? We see in Acts chapter 17, the Apostle Paul is in Athens. One of my favorite portions of Scripture. He sees a city, it's full of idols. He talks with the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. He reasons with the Jews. He preaches the gospel. And all the while, he's taking notice of the culture around him. And it's very evident in the way that he speaks. In Acts chapter 17, verses 22 and 23, it says, So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God, what therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. So notice he uses their unknown God Now, to proclaim the gospel. Look at what he does in verse 28. In him we live and move and have our being. He's quoting someone. As even some of whom your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Paul is quoting the poets of these people he's talking to. So what is the result? Verse 32. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, We will hear you again about this. So did Paul isolate himself from the culture? Was he, or was he so immersed in their culture that he looked no different? No. He used the things around him, in the culture around him, through his observation to glorify God, to bring about the truth of the gospel. Now, some of this is going to look very different for each of us. If there are things that are clearly sinful, well, it's not even worth considering for any of us. But for other things, I may need to refrain while you are able to maintain without sin. This is a difficult gray area of liberty that we've talked about. And we must always ask the question, is this profitable? Maybe, but don't ever let evangelism be your first priority. Holiness is your first priority. Now, living a countercultural life to participate in culture is often very difficult as a Christian. It's very easy for us to go with the flow, but I pray that each of us would be so enamored with Christ, so focused on advancing the kingdom of God, the gospel influences all sectors, all aspects, all arenas of our life which at times can be very uncomfortable, can be very difficult, and will be something that others sometimes stub their toe against because it looks so different from what they are used to. Jesus calls us in the Sermon on the Mount to many countercultural things, right? Love your neighbors and love your enemies. Give of your money and your time and your energies and your talents and your efforts. Serve those who love you and also those who hate you. Live and serve as an active, fruitful member of your community. Be a faithful friend and spouse. Do not be controlled by things and consumed by the world. Be modest and respectful and gracious and humble and joyful, no matter the circumstances in your life. None of these are virtues in the world. But for the Christian, there's a seriousness about our lives that is odd and uncomfortable to those around us. And sometimes it's offensive. But it is offensive in a very attractive way because there is a sweetness and a joy about our lives that is unmistakable. Even though we so adamantly believe it is because of the work of Jesus that they hate. A few things for us to remember. First is that we must not expect sinners to act like or respect Christians and our ideals and our ways of life. Our hearts are changed because of Jesus, not because of laws and rules. We cannot influence true change without preaching the gospel. It is God's means of transformation in life and in culture. So, In order to do that, we must have some idea about the culture, right? But there's some great cautions here. I often say, I know know that a sewer stinks without sticking my head in it, right? 
And how this is going to look for each of us is a little bit different. There's some things that you may be able to do without being tempted to sin when I cannot. But I will say, for example, do any of us need to go to a dance club downtown at 2 a.m. on a Friday night to know what goes on at dance clubs downtown at 2 a.m. on a Friday night? No. No, we don't. But we know and we have an idea, and so through that we can engage the culture. We don't just pretend it doesn't happen. But when we know the world around us and our neighbors know that our loyalties are to a different and better kingdom, when they see that we are distinct and strangely untouched by the habits of the culture around us, yet very well informed of its trends and flaws and history and triumphs, then they will begin to let us into their lives as we strive to create culture that will thrive by God's mercy. They're going to be perplexed by a lot. There's going to be a lot of disagreements. They will probably think you're too serious. They'll sometimes consider you archaic and foreign. They may never share our convictions that there is a kingdom that will come that is far greater than this one. But they may sense our hope that this kingdom will be remembered in part because the people of God found themselves as exiles in the midst of it and yet still sought after its welfare. We're very much like Daniel, right? We're in exile. Our home is another kingdom. And yet we are called to live for the peace and prosperity of this one while we are here. All through the scriptures we see statements like this. Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to the Father in heaven. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. Elders are to be thought well of by outsiders, not creating enemies in the name of Jesus. All of this implies an active participation in our culture, right? And yet very distinguished from the rest of men. So here's the challenge. How do we do this while maintaining a pursuit of holiness, refraining from worldliness? We are in a very, very moralistic culture that does not understand the gospel. And it is very easy to assume things in a moralistic culture. That they do not need countercultural redemption because on the surface things appear to be okay. So a moralistic person says, I'm not going to cuss, I'm not going to watch bad movies, I'm not going to look at women, I'm not going to eat boiled peanuts. All right, that's a joke. But the moralist continues to see themselves right back in their sins, right? Moralism does not work. Why? Because you cannot and you will not clean yourself up. It's not going to happen. You have no power. You have no desire in and of yourself to rid yourself of sin and sinful desires. And so the gospel of the grace of Jesus Christ subtly becomes, I clean myself up as a result. And as a result, Jesus is happy with me. What is that? What are you depending on for your righteousness? What are you depending on for your salvation? Yourself. And it's this very mentality that gets us to withdraw from the culture because we're depending on ourselves with no lack in the trust of God. So on the surface, as a person makes these strides at righteousness on their own, they may appear to be very moral, but self-righteousness is an ugly, damning sin. There's the root sin of self-love and self-exaltation. I want to make this very clear to all of us. The culture that we live in, in Rinkin, Georgia, is much more difficult to engage with the gospel than many of the foreign nations that have never, ever heard the name of Jesus before. Why is that? Because our neighbors have been inoculated with Jesus. An inoculation. 
You get the smallpox shot if you're in the military. Little shot. They give you just a little bit of it so that your body fights it when it comes. They've not gotten the whole thing, but they have just enough to make them feel like they've gotten it. And so for the most part, we're going to be living life with a lot of people. Not all. Don't hear me saying just us. But there are a lot of people that think that they're Christian, but they really aren't. Because they're basing it on this moralistic idea. Since they say certain words and they don't say certain others, they were raised in the church and baptized as a child and they're good to go. And they, in the words of Jeff Stevens, speak fluent Baptist, but they don't know Jesus. So the challenge is being countercultural in a culture that already thinks it is what we want it to be. You see the problem here? The problem is our neighbors know the gospel of try harder and do better. But they don't know the gospel of the harder you try, the better you seek to be, the more you will fail because you don't live with an understanding that you are powerless apart from Christ. His desire for me is not to make sure everyone in a restaurant sees that I pray before I eat. His desire for me is to pray for my neighbor, to invite them over for a meal, to serve them in tangible ways, to know about their life and to let them see the love of Christ and the sweetness of the gospel flow out of everything I am and everything I do because I have been so radically transformed by Jesus. That's what the gospel does. And can we be honest? The things that we do to try and hide from this calling are silly. We're not inviting people over to a meal and hiding a tract under their napkins so they might stumble upon it. Or when we're in our backyard wearing our barbecue apron that says, I heart Jesus so our neighbors can see it. What does this do? I want to be frank with all of us and we'll end. According to the Bible, as a result of this constant pursuit of moralism, when we try harder to do better time and time and time again without ever truly repenting and turning to Christ, there are some in our midst right now that will walk away from the church. Maybe not in the next five years, But there will be a few of you that walk away because this call, this instruction from the Word of God to be a countercultural people amongst a godless culture will prove to be foolishness. And your desires for the world will be greater than the things of God. And honestly, the way in which you give yourself to the world now is a good indicator of who you might be then, lest the Lord showers His grace upon you. Because you'll burn out on trying to earn something. Because moralism doesn't work. Isolation doesn't work. And the idols that we bow down to every single day are going to become more and more captivating and more and more entertaining and more fulfilling. More of what you want and you're going to continue to bow down to them until the day of destruction. And so we fight against moralism and jump in the other side and say, then I am part of this world wholesale. I want to wake us from a lull. I want to call us to be men and women who triumphantly engage the culture with the good news of the gospel being lived out in every aspect of our lives. Don't be like the world. Don't be like movie stars and sports stars and TV stars. Be like Christ. Don't have this superficial moralism in your life that if you're good and don't do too many bad things, everything will be cool. And you just... Fade into the background and the people of God will think you're good to go without challenging you too much. If you don't look one iota different from the world, there's a big problem. How can we be countercultural if we don't look any different from the culture we're already in? Strive to advance the kingdom. Strive to enter the narrow door. Strive to be an active servant amongst the church of God. Oh, how I want all of us to love the kingdom and love the church and serve the people of God. To be a countercultural people who reject the frivolous pursuits of this world. 
Don't walk away from Jesus. Don't walk away from the church. Repent and believe the gospel because the kingdom of God is at hand. Some of you young people are going to be tempted and some of you will do absolutely destructive things in your lives. Some of you adults have deep scars from your past. Some of you, all you've ever known of the Christian faith is a dead, boring, worn-out religion. And in this, you bear a resemblance to the world. But I serve a living God who sent a living Savior who calls all men to repent of their sins because the kingdom of God is at hand. This is a very countercultural message. We are to live out the implications of the gospel and be so utterly amazed by the power and glory and grace and magnificence and beauty and love and mercy and holiness and righteousness and justice and sovereignty of God that it is absolutely unmistakable in our lives that God is active and working and transforming and restoring and reconciling for His glory and our great joy. This is what we are to live. Counter cultural people who serve a great king and live for a great kingdom to be the people of God and not a people of this world. We all have some serious repenting to do. But know this. The countercultural life comes at a great price. Don't take from all of this that I'm saying everyone will love us and accept us as we step into our culture as ministers of reconciliation, it's a dangerous and deadly work. But we must join the Son in displaying the supreme satisfaction of the glory of grace on the road to Calvary and the road of suffering. The gospel of America, the gospel of moralism, the gospel of self-help, the gospel of prosperity will not make anybody praise Jesus. Of course I'll have your Jesus who gives me the job I want, the money I want, the house I want, the lifestyle I want. I'll take your Jesus if the payoff is right. That's not the way to win the lost to Christ and bring glory to Christ. He calls us to another way, a countercultural, radical, risk-taking, foolish to the ways of the world kind of way. We're not to be a people who sit back and hang out and wait for heaven. Do something great. Take risks for the sake of the kingdom. With our coworkers, in our hobbies, as we shop, as we talk and meet our neighbors. We're not talking about hounding people. We're talking about knowing people, living with and around and loving people because as you build a relationship, many gospel opportunities arise. When your neighbor's spouse dies, it's a gospel opportunity. When your co-worker's son gets arrested, it's a gospel opportunity. When one of the guys you play ball with or lift weights with at the Y tells you his wife wants to get a divorce. It's a gospel opportunity. Why don't we have 10,000 programs and activities at Ephesus Church? Because you know your co-workers and your neighbors 100 times better than us, and you will be 1,000 times more effective in engaging them in beneficial ways than if we were to create something that they might take part in. Might. I'm not saying we won't do anything. We do. But I am saying that you are the primary source in your relationships. By all means, bring them. Get them plugged in. But engage with your life. Engage with the gospel. Christ paid His life for our salvation. And we are called to join Him in that work of reconciliation that will bring suffering How are we going to see, how are we going to help others see how satisfying Christ is if our lives are consumed by Playstations and iPads and fashion or if our lives are so isolated that no one looks into our homes and into our lives and sees what it is to be transformed by Jesus? We must put worldliness aside. 
We must put isolation aside. We must walk with Christ in a countercultural way and participate for the glory of Christ. This is the call of the church. This is the call of a countercultural life. We must long for it. Let's strive hard after it. Let's live for it. Let us be willing to die for it, for Jesus' sake. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you that you give us a worthy calling to die for. Thank you for giving us in your word great instruction in how it is that we can do the very thing that Jesus prayed for us, to live in the midst of this lost and dying world without being overtaken by it. Help us all, Lord, in our temptation to remember that we live for a great kingdom that is not of this world. But while we are in this world, that we would live and strive and work for peace and prosperity, that through that, the world would see our good works and give glory to the Father who is in heaven. Help us, Lord, to not proclaim the gospel of isolation and moralism, Help us not to proclaim a false gospel of prosperity financially. Help us, Lord, to proclaim the gospel of Christ and Him crucified. That nothing in this world will satisfy. That nothing will bring enjoyment. That nothing will bring about change in our lives apart from the great work of Jesus Christ on our behalf to take upon Himself our sins and to give to us His righteousness. Father, help us to proclaim that to our co-workers, to our neighbors, to those people in the stores that we shop in, the restaurants we eat at, to the people we do our hobbies with. Father, in all of these sectors of life, help us to not simply Walk along as though we are part of this world, but to be countercultural, to engage in these things that our neighbors and co workers would not be surprised when we proclaim that Christ is our King. Lord, help us to have a right balance. Help us to have a right love for our neighbors, for our enemies, for the sake of your glory, for the sake of the advancement of your kingdom for the sake of the joy of your people. We love you, we praise you, we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.